The White House has released an implementation plan for its national cybersecurity strategy. It outlines 65 actions agencies must do to stay ahead of threats. For more on the plan and an upcoming workforce strategy, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the Assistant National Cyber Director for Cyber Policy and Programs, Nick Lyerson. Fundamentally, the National Cybersecurity Strategy recognizes that there are significant changes that need to be made in the ecosystem in order for us to achieve the president's vision. And one of them has to do with the people that populate cyberspace, right? The people that use the technology that we rely on. And the people element is so fundamental to what we do in cyberspace that actually the president tasked out a separate strategy specifically on workforce and education. And that's what the Office of the National Cyber Director has been working on and that we hope to be releasing in the next couple of weeks. I think what you can expect to see from that, right, is very similar to the strategy. It's a strategy that's nested under the strategy. So it's using the same principles that have guided how we look about cybersecurity, but it has within it several pillars and objectives and different elements that we need to see. And I think one of the biggest themes that has emerged as we've been working on developing it is the idea that you really need to push upstream, right, get earlier into the pipeline for the development of digital skills if you want to be able to get the cybersecurity professionals that we need to see on the front lines defending our networks. And oftentimes, I think people are looking at the end and saying, hey, I need someone to come into my sock. How do I develop that person? But what we've discovered is, in many cases, the answer is, well, you need to do something 10 years ago to really get them onto this path. So that's a point of emphasis that I think you can expect to see when it comes out in the coming weeks and months. So it seems like there's kind of that dual track idea of workforce getting people in the door now, and then that longer term thing, the education piece of things, ensure that that pipeline is going for a long period of time, that this is a going concern for folks. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, one of the points of emphasis that the president makes in the strategy, right, in the prefatory material, before we get into the parts that animate me day to day, right, the vision that he has says, look, we're going to a clean energy future. It needs to be a secure, clean energy future. The way we get there is technology. And as technology becomes ever more integrated into our lives, we also need to recognize that that means Every American is going to need to be equipped with a set of digital skills in order to just navigate the world, right? What it is, what it means to be a citizen in the United States and what it means to be able to take advantage of the great innovations that are coming means you're going to need to be well-founded with a set of digital skills. And one of the things, again, that I think we found is that same digital skill set that you need is also critical to help produce experts, the specialized folks who are really going to help us on the cybersecurity front. Something I didn't hear today, but I just want to get your thoughts on, in terms of that evolving threat landscape, AI is becoming more and more a concern there. The pace of the threat is escalating as that technology gets more mature. In terms of agencies, you know, one, having proficiency in the AI themselves and being aware of what AI is being used by the threat actors, you know, where do you see agencies just needing to get um, baseline literacy in these things, become more savvy, things of that nature? Yeah, so I think that there are a couple of themes, right, from the launch that relate to this. So the first is collaboration, right? We're not, agencies aren't going to get smart on this without working closely with private sector, civil society, academia. So that is an important element to how are we going to deal with any new emerging technology or threat paradigm. Another thing that I think we 
emphasize, right, is the strategy is meant to be an enduring document, and many of the principles that you see in the strategy in terms of saying, hey, we need to shift cybersecurity responsibility to those with more capability to bear it, or we need to incentivize investments in long-term resilience are equally applicable to new technologies like advanced language learning models. And what we really hope to see is that as, you know, there are several societal challenges, you know, and opportunities that artificial intelligence presents. From the cybersecurity standpoint, what we want to see is that principles from the strategy in Secure by Design, for instance, are incorporated into AI software models because, frankly, they are software at the end of the day. And while there may be some other effects in the economy, for instance, where security is, it may have security effects that aren't necessarily cybersecurity effects. From where we sit in the Office of the National Cyber Director, we think there's a lot that you can take from the National Cybersecurity Strategy and apply to new technologies like AI. Obviously, one key piece of things is that stakeholder engagement. A number of times it came up, the, the RFI for that regulatory harmonization. What ultimately are you hoping to hear from that? And, and how do you see that RFI uh, making sure that everyone's, when it comes to cyber threats, reading from the same sheet of music here? Yeah, so I think, you know, one of the things that really excites us about regulatory harmonization is that we view it as a win-win, right, where society ends up with better cybersecurity from the critical infrastructure that supports the critical functions that govern our day-to-day lives, and industry ends up with better cybersecurity outcomes for less money because they don't have to worry as much about duplicative compliance burdens. So where we're trying to get with the RFI and with our regulatory harmonization work fundamentally is a good understanding of what is a good reciprocity framework, right? How do we set up a system where an entity, a company, someone who's an owner or an operator in critical infrastructure can show that they've met baseline cybersecurity requirements for the common enterprise IT that exists in the banking sector, that exists in the communication sector, and exists in our grid, and say, okay, we've demonstrated that we've met the requirements that we need, and we don't have to demonstrate that in a different way to a different regulator, right? They agree that these are the requirements that we have in mind, and this is the way that you show that. So that's really the framework that we're trying to build because we recognize that if you tried to say, here are the requirements, if you start from what are the requirements that we all agree on, you're not going to end up in a great place because those requirements necessarily need to evolve. Technology changes, you know, what was state-of-the-art cybersecurity 20 years ago is absolutely not today. And, you know, with there are several sections in the implementation plan that are focused, for instance, on post-quantum cryptography. And that algorithm doesn't exist yet, right? NIST is standardizing it. We expect to see it next year. It's one of the initiatives in, in the implementation plan. That is an example of a requirement that will need to be updated as technology evolves. Nick Lyerson, Assistant National Cyber Director for Cyber Policy and Programs, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher 
Education Administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about 
ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. 
Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here, you understand the culture over here, you understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of the way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.